Hello and welcome to Two Peds in a Pod, medical education podcast from the Children's Emergency Department in Derby. My name's Ian Lewins, one of the consultants there, and today's podcast is going to be very much a research themed podcast um, and I'm, I'm very pleased to be involved in a department that's involved in research and we've had some fantastic uh, doctors involved and, and particularly some excellent research nurses and we've been involved in studies such as the eclipse and currently Capit and force uh, and when you think about research I think in the UK and social media and people involved the two names to me come to mind the first one is is one of our previous guests Damien Rowland Um, And the second is today's guest, and that is Dr. Tom Waterfield, who's a PM doc and researcher at the Queen's University in Belfast. Good afternoon, Tom, and welcome. Hi, Ian. Thanks for um, having me on. Uh, That's quite a kind introduction, I think, even to be in the same um, breath as Damien Rowland is quite quite an honour. Oh, he's not that important. Don't, don't. I would have said uh, Damien and... Damien Rowland and Mark Little. Yes, anyway. maybe so. No, <laughs> they would have been my two. Um, and we're going to talk about a study that you've, you've been heavily involved in, which uh, we, we, we're using in Derby, and that's the Petechiae in Children study, the PIC study. Um, so, first of all, tell me a bit about how you sort of got involved in this study. So, um, for me, it was an interesting one. So, I started my training as a, um, as a paediatric uh, ACF. Uh, and um, a bit like probably lots of people, my research um, didn't quite follow my clinical interest, so mm. it started off uh, around allergy, which was very interesting, but then as time went on, I became more and more interested in peds emergency medicine. So kind of took a bit of a break. I took a bit of time away from research and focused more on clinical. And then just with Peruki, with Damien, who mentioned, with Mark, um, there became some more opportunities to kind of get back involved in research, uh, and this coincided with an interest I'd had in looking after a child who developed meningococcal through my time in intensive care mm. and just made me look back and, and think about how we how we approach the, di- the diagnosis of you know, severe infection and particularly meningococcal infection. So a little bit of I wanted to do some research, this was quite emotive and then looking around at what Peruki had asked for in terms of research, uh, two of their kind of top 10 or 20 aims were around fever and non-blanching rash yeah. so kind of all those things together led to the to be the, the kind of beginnings of the idea of the project okay so for those people who've not sort of got involved and not heard of it what is pick about what, 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 are you, what are you looking at so um essentially one of the most widely known or um well kind of publicized symptoms for serious infection including meningococcal is a non-blanching rash um, and, and so we find obviously we get parents presenting appropriately with, with children with a non-blanching rash and we also get clinicians who are quite clued into that as a, as a significant risk for, for, for more severe infection um, but then when we actually start looking at it and looking at the background a lot of our evidence for our current practice is pretty dated mm. so and actually, when I say dated, I mean we're talking pre late nineties, so pre men C vaccine, certainly yeah. pre men B vaccine, yeah. and, uh, um, and we we thought actually it might be worth looking at this uh, again um, because we weren't sure. Um, there was a feeling, or there was a sense that we were perhaps treating lots and lots of children uh, just in case, uh, appropriately so, yeah. but perhaps giving children uh, invasive you know procedures and antibiotics that they didn't need, and then there's still you know every year there's still cases of delayed. 
you know, late diagnosis. Yeah. So there was a feeling that we just didn't quite have it quite right. Okay. So, um, sorry. Yeah, go on. I mean, one of the things when I saw this was um, I was involved very, very loosely in in the late 90s in sort of collecting data for the, I think, the original studies trying to sort of come up with a protocol, um, which, which sort of forms the basis of the, the, the Newcastle-Birmingham-Liverpool algorithm that we use locally. Um, and that was sort of looked at again, I think a few, two, three, four years ago, looking at, you know, what's the sensitivity and specificity, particularly versus the NICE guidance. And sensitivity was was really quite good, and specificity, okay, not quite so good, but but not bad. And when I looked at Becker, I thought, what's what is this going to add to what we already do? What is it going to add? What do you think it's going to help so us I with? I think the, to just kind of um, have that out at the moment. My opinion is that the Newcastle Birmingham Liverpool algorithm is um, that would be my preferred algorithm over Nice. Yeah. Um, that's my opinion at the moment. Um, I can't prove that. The algorithm itself, the, although the publication, so Andrew Reardon's publication came yes. out in uh, 2016, I think it was, yes. he, the data was collected mostly in the 90s. So I think they have 600 patients and about 150 of them with uh, invasive and intracochal infection. So based on that, yes, it's it's sensitive. It's actually, the specificity is very, very good. Um but I'm not sure that represents what we're actually seeing coming through the emergency department. So it doesn't feel that one in four children that we see with a, a fever and a non-matching mm. rash have an intracochal infection. And certainly the data that we're, we're already collecting would reflect that the risk is much, much lower than that. Sure. So um, the, the only um, issue I, I suppose we have with, if, with NICE and, and the existing clinical practice guidelines is that they were written and assessed at a time when meningococcal infection was much more likely. Yeah. And also, the population that they were assessing isn't quite the same. So when you really dig into these studies, a lot of them are actually children who have been admitted with fever, non-blanching rash, mm. and concern of meningococcal, or in the Andrew Reardon paper, children that were put onto this pathway um, at the clinician's discretion. Mm. So what we suspected was happening was lots and lots of um, you know, slightly milder illness children weren't actually ever getting into these studies. Okay. They're okay. then written up, you know, saying one in four children with fever and non-blanching mm. rash have meningococcal. And that guidance is then expanded out to general practice, A&E, um, and it's affecting the care of perhaps a different population, a different group. Okay. So we kind of want to look at it and say, right, every child that comes in with a fever and non-blanching rash and that would, that, that would or should enter into these pathways, we want to know what's happening to every single one of them so that we, we don't just get, we actually get a, a real feel for what we're doing. Okay. Um, and there was just, I mean, there was one study that was done in the States, at the top of my head, I haven't got the reference, but I can get it for you and you can put it on your podcast. It's just um, a similar study was done in an A&E department in America years ago, where they just looked at every single kid that came through, uh, and they had around a 1% risk. Yeah. So fever non-blanching rash, 1% risk of an intercocal, and that probably, to me, feels about right. Yes, I'd certainly agree with that. And as you say, the population, particularly with the introduction of the, the MenB vaccine, is, is, is almost, you know, has significantly changed to the extent that, that in our department not too long ago, we had a child with a proper meningococcal rash who, interestingly, was unvaccinated. Um, and whilst we were treating this child, all the junior doctors came and had a look because they just hadn't seen 
a child with a meningococcal, proper meningococcal rash, which is so different to my experience as a, as a junior doctor sort of 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, so, yeah, you're almost certainly right. It, it, it's a different population that we're looking at. I think at the end of the study, what we should be able to do is tell you with a fair amount of confidence the risk, yeah. first of all. So that's the one thing we actually don't really know. You have a child in front of you with a fever and unblanching rash. What's the risk mm. and some of the features that make them high risk? But, but, but actually to quantify that. And then we should be able to independently validate the guidelines that are out there. So there's... There's, there's a few, but there's three that particularly I'm, I'm really interested in, again, on a slightly personal level, and that is the NICE guidance, yep. the Newcastle, Birmingham, Liverpool. And then there's actually a, a relatively, well, it's an unpublished guideline from Nottingham, which was based on all of the research that they did in the late 90s, which um, has a group of children, uh, so if it's SVC distribution only and they're well, have no investigations and are, and are essentially discharged. Yep. So um, there are some, there are some, you know, variations in practice, and it'd be nice to be able to independently validate and say, look, this this out of all of the guidance, this is the one that appears to be the best in terms of identifying all of the cases and minimising the number of children we treat unnecessarily. Okay, so let's talk about the study itself. What are your inclusion criteria? Um, so, if the child presents to the emergency department with a non, a new non-blanching rash. Uh, and a fever or history of fever, they're essentially eligible for inclusion okay. in the study. And that can be a reported fever at home. It doesn't have to be a recorded fever within the ED. Is that correct? No. So we we know we know that the if they have a fever at home, the risk is similar to if they have a fever in the emergency department. And and that was one of the things with Andrew Rin's work. They talk about actually a fever outside of not having a fever in the ED itself is not that reassuring. I think that was fairly new then. I don't, I don't think it's as new. Mm. I think it's fairly well accepted now. That said, it's unlikely that we'll have absolutely no history of any kind of mm. fever. It just may have been that it's, a, it's occurred at home. And thinking about then exclusion criteria, I presume no fever gets you excluded. Is there any, any age cut off to this? So we, we don't have an age cut-off, um, just because there doesn't pe- appear to be any age cut-offs in the existing guidance. Um, the only exclusion criteria we've got are children with known conditions which would give them a non-blanching rash, so specifically children with uh, active ITB, yeah. HSP, um, uh, coagulation disorders, or you know, on chemotherapy. Sure. Something uh, where they may have presented, it wouldn't be the first time, so if you had a child presented with ITP, diagnose them but then obviously if they were to reattend three or four days later with an intercurrent viral illness uh we wouldn't we wouldn't look to re- re-include them okay um okay so i've got my child they've got a fever they're not unwell but they've got a particular rash what happens next how do i recruit them and, and what do the parents do so this is a, i suppose um where we might be slightly different to other studies uh, in that we try to make it as easy to recruit patients as possible so you said if we go back to our initial aims we want a really fair picture of everyone that's coming through um, so if we only focus on children that are admitted or whatever mm-hmm. we, we actually skew that so if a child comes in we have an electronic case report form um, or, or you can there is also a paper version of it and you essentially we start to record their clinical data as they as they arrive, as they as 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 is convenient and as as prospectively as possible, which is again another advantage of our study over 
some of the previous work. And that can be done by the clinical team um, rather than having to be specific uh, you know, research staff mm. uh, and, the, and, and it's designed to be kind of very minimal in terms of workload. Um, there's no discussion around consent at that point. Mm. Uh, the data is collected. Um, then essentially the, the consent discussion occurs at the kind of first um, appropriate opportunity and we can maybe, maybe explain what I mean by that in a moment. Um, and then we have a second case report form, which is essentially data that's not open to bias, not not as uh, not as not necessarily acquired prospectively, and that relates to things like length of stay, antibiotics given, mm. uh, blood culture, PCR results, and that's all completed um, later on. Um, so I think we try to make it easy so that the data can be captured as close to the attendance as possible, as prospectively as possible by. Kind of without having to have specific research staff on the floor to do it, and certainly our experience has been actually you know it's a, it's a very easy sort of study to do. It, it, it and, and you know explain to parents it's it I'm not allocating you to one arm or the other. It is simply we are collecting data to find out what's the what's the best way of of, of treating things and what's the, what's the best approach. Uh, and you know that that seems to actually most parents feel very comfortable with that. Is that your experience? Yeah, so, so we've got uh, yeah, 35 sites and we've had uh, just over 700 ch- children recruited and we're running at a decline rate of just under 1%. Um, the, we did quite a lot of work, so it started in Belfast as a, essentially as a pilot. Mm. We, uh, you mentioned Eclipse. Um, uh, we had, I worked with Kerry Wolfel, who's a, a sociologist at Liverpool University and a, a, a bit of a, essentially an expert in... Um, deferred consent and uh, children's emergency research and we have just submitted um, a paper on it essentially looking at parents feedback from that pilot so we worked we did 15 in 15 interviews with families um, after they've been through the PIC consent process to kind of better understand the timing you know how we can make it as appropriate as possible and essentially the bottom line was they support research. Mm. Um, they support emergency research. Um, they like to discuss the research face to face as much as possible. Um, but they're happy. They understand why we come and speak to them afterwards. So they nearly all said they would just wouldn't feel it would be appropriate to have a research discussion at the same time as you're you know, assessing and mission initiated mm. treatment because they they think that would be a distraction or it'd be inappropriate. So. Um, we think the methods we've got are pretty good in terms of you pick the, the first kind of appropriate time point, which is usually when the parents have seen an improvement in the child mm-hmm. and have a plan, yeah. which can be quite quickly. It can be an A&E. It can, it can be the next day if, if they're sick and intensive care. It could be a week, but it's about timing them around when the family's ready and, and it's kind of appropriate. Um, but no, we've had it. It's been very, very well accepted. Mm. Um and we haven't had a kind of systematic same concern that's come up. Um, and looking at, you know, speaking to Damien, Mark, other people involved in other studies, we're getting very similar kind of feedback that, that's, that's been said before. So all in all, it's pretty positive. Yeah. And certainly, you know, in the time it's been running, 700 recruited patients is, is really quite impressive. Do you have a, uh, is it running for a time period or for a certain number that you want to recruit? What's what's the end point? So, so this, is a, this is the thing that's more, kind of evolved more recently so 
this started as a PhD project feasibility study in Belfast. Um, we recruited well. We got fantastic feedback from parents. Um, we got Pruki support. We got uh, NAHR portfolio adoption, which opened lots of opportunities in England because that makes research departments want to get involved in the mm. study. Um, and we essentially rolled into a large observational study with a view that we'd probably need to stop at some point and repeat it or extend it. Um, recruitment's been so good in the last couple of months and uh, we've made the decision with Pruki to extend the study for another winter. Okay. So we're going to run until um, the 1st of March 2020 with the hope, based on the last kind of two, three months recruitment rates, of picking up maybe 2,000 children, um, with the hope of essentially being the, the, the kind of best available evidence for children with non-blanching rash um, and, and to try and pick out kind of the risk and what we should be doing with these children. Okay, so so 2020 is now the new cut-off. So you're going to get a decent number of kids in that, aren't you? So we're going to have you know three winters, two winters with nearly all the sites open, um, a, a good number of children in terms of face validity. I think the issue we're going to have now is with meningococcal being as rare as it is, mm. um, to, it, it's, we're not going to get you know three sites, two years, 150 cases, which we had for the, the research, particularly mm. things like Andrew Reardon's yeah. research. We're, we're going to be looking at, you know, that could be 30 cases out of 2,000 children. Mm. So it's going to be harder, I think, to define a new clinical practice guideline from scratch. I don't think we'll have necessarily enough cases of an intracockle, but I think we will be able to really inform on the, the risk. Mm. Uh, and I think we'll be able to um, validate the guidelines out there and perhaps point towards which one is most useful. Okay. Um, and it's just putting some context in. So uh, it could be that the risk is becomes low enough that we consider fever and non-blanching rash as a very worrying symptom, but you know whether or not that guideline needs opening up. T- so it's not just an intracochal infection, but actually, you know, we still see the odd case of pneumococcal infection. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nearly a similar rate of newly diagnosed. Um, see, febrile neutropenia is a kind of first presentation of a leukemic illness that is actually featuring at a not dissimilar rate oh, of right. okay. meningococcal now. So, you know, it's that kind of thing. It's just changing that landscape from perhaps before or when that was your only really concern was meningococcal to yeah. actually, yes, it could be, but there's other things and, and the risk isn't quite what it was. And, I mean, that's, that's really important. At, at, at some other point, are, are you going to be thinking about other investigations that we can do to even sort of reduce the... Uh, the number of children that are giving antibiotics. I'm thinking, for example, you know, we, we've sort of talked on Twitter about procalcitonin. Is that something that you, this study is specifically looking at, or is that for another so we, time? No, so we we do. So as part of the kind of the, the pilot feasibility, we looked at additional rapid testing. So we looked at procalcitonin. Um, we looked at adrenomodulin as as point of care tests. Um, so we do those in. We can actually. We do those in the emergency department and we have different sites. Not We have a small number of sites doing those tests uh, and we also have sites looking at um, essentially point-of-care PCR on throat swabs. Mm. Um, so LAMP or loop-mediated isothermal amplification just rolls off the tongue. But essentially um, a rapid um, PCR that's very 
they're tolerant of biological fluids and can be done at kind of one temperature, which means you can take it out of a lab nice. and put it in A&E. So we will have data from about 300 children. Okay. The problem there is that that's so hard to scale when the um, when actually the number of cases of meningococcal is so low. Mm. So realistically, I th- we will publish those outputs. Um, I, th- I think there is some potentially some benefit to point of care testing, but um, I think it's unlikely we'll be able to provide you with any any clear guidance on whether or not you should use them and where in the pathway. Mm. Because because again, it's becoming so um, uncommon. Yeah. And, and that's so that one for the future potentially, but it's well, isn't. I, I, I mean, as an opinion, I wonder if we're going to come out of this, um, and the biggest finding from it is going to be um, that we the, the, that we actually prove what the risk is, hmm. and that the risk is, I suspect, in and around one percent of children with fever and non-blanching yeah. rash, and they typically look quite sick, or have a rapidly spreading rash, or have purpura, yeah. and actually, though, though, you know, actually, if you follow the guidance to the letter. Um, very many of these children are, are treated would, or would be treated with antibiotics. So looking at mm. challenging those guidelines and developing those so that we get a little bit more balanced in not treating everyone, but also still being able to identify those that need that, that may go on to deteriorate, which is, the, I suppose, the yeah. hardest thing. Yeah, picking those up. The, the, the poorly ones up early, yeah. Fantastic, lovely. Thank you so much, Tom. That, that's that's really interesting, and it's you know the, the more I get involved in doing bits, very very small bits of research, I think the more interesting it becomes to me. And uh, I think having explained that, I think that's that's excellent. And where any thoughts yet as to where you might be publishing this, or is that a bit too far ahead? Um, so the, the the qualitative work, which is around around deferred consent. Um, we have put that in for archives. Okay. No guarantee they'll accept that. That was submitted just there yesterday. Um, we'll see. Uh, I, I would like this. I, I, if it went well, I, I would be looking at something like BMJ. Yeah. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Just because I think it has a broad appeal for. Um, it's very UK based, but I think it would be of interest to A and E, GP, pediatricians. But um, you sure you know? I'll tweet about it anyway. Yes. So. Okay. Well, good luck with that. And I think that the, the final thing I just wanted to mention, looking at your, your Twitter feed, is that totally unrelated to this, you're running the London Marathon this year. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So that's I suppose that's the other thing. As I said, what did you get out of your PhD? It'll be a number of papers and a qualification, and and uh, I got a bit fitter. So yeah, I'm <laughs> running, getting quite yeah, running quite a bit the last twelve months. In London Marathon in um, yeah this year for Macmillan Cancer Support. So, so yeah, so. Uh, if anyone wants to sponsor me, that'd be great. Yeah, and I can see that's currently your pinned tweet. So if you want to sponsor Tom, it's there. Fantastic. Lovely. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tom. And, and all the best. And we'll, we'll keep, keep us updated and we'll keep looking on Twitter and seeing how you're getting on. Thanks, Ian. Fantastic.